June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com, where we cover military news and the veteran lifestyle each and every week. Now, one year ago this week, we ended combat operations and officially packed up and left Afghanistan. And earlier this week, the VFW statement gave a sobering analysis of what Afghanistan means to Americans. From the U.S. invasion shortly after the devastating attacks on September 11th, to the very last U.S. Air Force C-17 that lifted off the Hamid Karzai International Airport runway on August 30th, 2021. Approximately 800,000 American military men and women served in Afghanistan. And it's estimated that the U.S. has spent over $2 trillion. The U.S. and its NATO partners helped the Afghan people set up a new government, establish its own security forces. They held elections, opened schools, built roads and allowed for commerce and communication to flow. The administration claims it believed that the Afghan government would be able to maintain the momentum built since they were freed from the Taliban rule almost 20 years before. Even though it seems that's pretty questionable. Now the VFW went on to thank our incredible veteran community for standing up and fighting for what was, and frankly still is, right. But there's so much more to this story. From a horrible plan, to flat out, failures in policy, security checkpoints manned by State Department officials that likely cost the lives of the very Afghans who fought to save ours. Now, I heard about all this from a veteran who is one of the strongest voices on Afghanistan in America. Matt Zeller is an Army combat veteran who was a senior advisor to Afghan security forces. Zeller's life was saved by his interpreter, and since his deployment, he's worked fiercely as a policy advisor and activist, fighting to save the lives of Afghan allies that will surely be killed by the Taliban now that we're gone. Your initial experience here was getting your interpreter, a man that you owe your life to, here to the States. Just explain briefly a little bit about the background with you and Janice Shunwari. Sure. I'm only reason I'm sitting here talking to you right now is because of my brother, Janice. So I was an embedded combat advisor, which meant I was one of the uh, U.S. military personnel that was assigned to live and work alongside and train the Afghan security forces. Um, I don't speak Dari or Pashto, so I had to have an interpreter with me basically at all times. And Janice was my my interpreter during that tour. Um, 
he shot and killed two Taliban fighters who were about to kill me in a battle 14 years ago. And that's the only reason why I'm alive doing anything today. Um, I promised him that if I could ever repay that life debt, all he had to do was ask. And it, I learned firsthand just how arduous and difficult it is to actually get somebody one of these promised special immigration visas. And then the challenges that are inherent with actually helping them get to the United States and then ultimately resettling. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's been, uh, you know, I, I thought that by helping out my brother, that would be my, my one good deed. And I would have repaid my life debt and, you know, we'd move on with our lives. But Janice has a funny way of, of showing you how to be a better person at all times. And, uh, he wasn't done paying things forward and, uh, felt that, uh, you know, my efforts to help get him here could be replicated and should be replicated, uh, to assist at the very minimum, the other interpreters that had lived on our outpost and worked with us. And so he insisted that the monies that I had raised to help get him and his family and their new lives started here in the United States, he insisted we use instead to found an organization that's now called No One Left Behind. And that organization has been, you know, on the forefront of helping Afghans and Iraqis who served alongside U.S. forces get the visas that they were promised in exchange for their service and then ultimately resettle in the United States. It's weird that we're talking, we're recording this on what I consider to be the actual anniversary of the end of the Afghan evac and the American presence in Afghanistan. A lot of people claim it's the 15th of, of August because that's the day Kabul fell to the Taliban. But for me, it really is today. Today is the saddest day because today is the day that we left Afghanistan for good a year ago. Uh, today's the day that we truly abandoned these people to, you know, a, an evil force that I feel is akin to the Nazis uh, in terms of the level of depravity and, and, and just, horror and, and terror that they bring to the people under their purview. It's a real shame. It's a real shame. Uh, we left behind some 300,000 uh, SIV applicants, and that includes family members uh, during the EVAC last year. The vast majority of the interpreters and their families who served alongside U.S. forces were never even able to make it to the airport, let alone onto aircrafts. And they remain left behind where the Taliban has as we feared and tried to warn, have engaged in a systemic countrywide campaign over the last year to hunt these people down along with their spouses and children and murder all of them, not just the former interpreter, but the whole family, because they have a very North Korean sentimentality towards punishment. It's collective. It's, yeah, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Uh, you know, a year later, those of us who were very much at the forefront of the Afghan evac, digital Dunkirk, whatever you want to call it, we're still fighting this fight. It, it's been a daily existence for the last 365 days. There's not been a single day in the last year where at some point I haven't been personally contacted by an Afghan who's overseas who thinks that I might be able to help get them to safety and and get their family to safety. And the hardest thing in the world is – wanting to be able to help this person and knowing there's nothing I can do. As an Afghanistan veteran and former intelligence officer, Zeller has a deep understanding of the special immigrant visa process, and he shed some light on specifically how the U.S. government failed when it came to our evacuation from Kabul and what we should be doing now. My qualm isn't with some random colonel 
that that turned a bus away. My qualm is with the State Department, quite frankly. And it's not the whole State Department in particular. It's whoever ran the internal checkpoint at HKIA. So th- this wasn't very well reported, but there was a checkpoint within a checkpoint. So let's say from the perspective of an Afghan, you're trying to get onto the air the airfield, right? And you've shown up and there's First off, you've got to somehow make it through Taliban held Kabul, right? So you make it somehow down to the airport. And then you've got to make it through a ring of Taliban security because they set up their own checkpoints to try to prevent people from getting there. Let's say you make it through their checkpoint. Now you got to go through the scrum of humanity that's actually in between the Taliban and the U.S. military that are on the perimeter of HKIA. Most of that, by the way, is surrounded by a sewage moat. So you're standing at some point, maybe chest, shoulder deep in sewage, raw sewage, right? For hours on end in the blazing heat of summer, no water, no food, no place to go to the bathroom, right? And it's, you know how hot it can be in a crowd of people at a concert. Imagine that in the heat of the day, but there's thousands of people all pressing to try to get in one of five or six available gates. Okay, somehow let's say you make it all the way up to the U.S. military, and you're still somehow able to get yourself inside the airport. At this point, you're thinking from from the Afghan's perspective, oh, my goodness, I pulled off the impossible. I got on the X, and I'm getting out now. But what you don't know that is waiting for you is past the U.S. military checkpoint. After you've been searched, frisked, and made sure that you don't have any explosives on you, no weapons, that you're not a security threat, You then hit the internal State Department checkpoint from hell in which they were triaging who they felt deserved to get onto the airplanes. And if they determined that you weren't on their list to get on an airplane, they threw you off the airfield back into the scrum of humanity. I had someone I was personally assisting. Early on in the EVAC, it was like 4 o'clock in the morning U.S. time, so it had been about 4.30 in the afternoon their time. They had made it to the 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 north gate, which is where I had told them to go. And the person, this person is a U.S. citizen, and they were there with 18 members of their family who are not U.S. citizens, all Afghans, but all are, as, again, back to that collective punishment, they're all going to be killed by the Taliban, right? Because... That's just how the Taliban do. So this U.S. citizen, they get to the the gate. The American military at the gate lets them in, but not the rest of their family because the rest of the family don't have the correct passport, right? So this person then calls me up and they say, hey, look, the rest of the family is outside the gate here. I'm inside. We got to get them through. You know as well as I do that the Taliban are going to kill these people. I said, okay, put me on speakerphone and let me talk to the nearest U.S. military service member that you can find. And so this Afghan-American walks up to some Marine, and I begin explaining who I am and who that person is. And I'm being very coy about this for a reason, about their identity. The Marine immediately says, sir, I know exactly who you are. It's an honor to talk to you. I know your organization. I know what you all do. How can I help? And I said, you have to understand the person that you're talking to right now in front of you that's handed you their phone. uh, This person 
and their family are all on the Taliban hit list. And you got to get them out. And they're all outside right now. And, and they, this person needs you to help get the rest of their family out of the, the base. And this Marine said to me, Roger that, sir. Too easy. And then he turned to this individual and they said, here's what's going to happen. My Marines and I are going to go out with you out to the scrum of humanity. You're going to point out who your family members are. And one at a time, we're going to pull them into the airport. And we're going to get your family. And then they, this person said to me, he said, don't worry, sir. We've got this. These people are taken care of. You can go on to the next case. And so I hung up the phone thinking, oh, my goodness, it worked. Maybe maybe this will be arduous, but it's, it's possible to maybe start getting some folks out. Ten minutes later, they called me back to let me know that they were all on the airfield, and they were headed towards being manifested to put on planes. Ten minutes go by. My phone rings again. It's the American citizen. They're in hysterics. They're pleading with another person on the other end of, of the line, and I'm on speakerphone. And they're saying, please, please talk to him. He'll explain to you who we are and why we have to get on. And when I hear is an American voice say, I don't give a fuck who that is. It could be the president of the United States on the other end of the line for all I care. I'm not talking to that person. And then they said to the, the Afghan-American, you have a decision to make. You can either go and get on that plane and go home, or I'm going to take you by your arm and I'm going to throw you back into that fucking crowd. And this person said, I'm an American citizen. And they said, I don't give a fuck who you are. You have the decision to make. You need to get the fuck off my checkpoint. Get on a plane or go back in the crowd. What do you want to do? And this person said to me on the phone, what should I do? Do I come home to my children or do I stay here with my parents? And they did what any parent would do. They came home to their kids. That State Department official, that consular, one of the 36 consular affairs officials that apparently ran this checkpoint from hell, that's who I have a qualm with. Because they were the ones who were ultimately deciding who got to stay and go, right? I had four, we had Tim had his whole situation with his buses. The New York Times wrote about a whole situation where we had a bunch of people on buses that we had worked, quite frankly, with the CIA to move these people from uh, a staged area right outside the airport onto the um, onto the, uh, the the airport itself without having to like go through the, the the craziness of walking human beings through this scrum of humanity. We had this whole thing set up, and again. They hit that stupid State Department checkpoint. And that State Department checkpoint went, we don't know who these people are. We're not tracking this. And they turned the buses around. And I had, I mean, I I still got the text messages from the people who were on those buses who got sent back. We had them all staged at the Ministry of Interior building, which is across the street from H. Kaya. And so we're the Taliban hadn't taken over the building yet. And so we were using it as a staging point. So these buses get all sent back to the Ministry of Interior, which suddenly draws the attention of the Taliban, because like, what the hell is going on over there? And they sent the Haqqani Badiri Brigade, the 333, the the, the Taliban guys who look like U.S. Special Forces, that by far their most best equipped, best trained units. They sent these guys over to check out what was going on. And the Afghans who are in this building start texting me going, oh, my God, the Haqqanis are here. They're dividing us into two groups. They're saying American citizens and green card holders can leave and everyone else has to stay here. 
And then they turn to us and they, this is again, this guy texting me, he says, they're telling us, oh, so you used to work for the Americans, huh? You're not going anywhere. You're all staying right here. I lost comms with most of the people after that. I got one family out of that, that, that compound when that happened. One, I was able to get them onto the airport and get them out using a basically a back door that I knew about that was good for one family. But everyone else I tried to get out, I couldn't get past that internal State Department checkpoint from hell. And I cannot wait for the Afghan War Commission to hopefully call me as a witness so I can testify to this. Because whoever implemented that checkpoint, one, should never work in government again. Two, as far as I'm concerned, is as complicit as the Taliban and the deaths of these people. And and three, ought to be held accountable for, for their actions. Um, there was an after-action report that was done in 1975 after the evacuation of Saigon. I, I'm starting to get the sense that I might be one of the a handful of people who have ever read it uh, since it was written. Because if you read the thing, what they talk about was that during the evacuation of Saigon, the State Department did the exact same thing. They ran the checkpoint from hell at the U.S. Embassy in Saigon to try to determine who got on the helicopters and who didn't. And the after action report after that situation clearly stated that if there was ever another scenario in which the U.S. was withdrawing from a war zone, doing what's called a NEO, uh, a non, you know, whatever. Evacuation uh, order. Yeah. yeah. Non-combatant evacuation order. Um, that State Department should not have any role on the ground whatsoever. That the after-action report said that by running their own triage checkpoint from hell, they actually held up a significant portion of the evacuation and prevented the DOD from being able to get the vast majority of the people that they could get out, out. And that if this was to ever happen going forward, that DOD should be entirely in charge so that they could maximize what's called throughput, meaning getting as many people onto a plane and off the X as possible. And then this was key, then triaging who you got out at a safe location and figuring out from there, okay, who gets to go to America and who was sneaky enough that we didn't want you ever to get out, but you did. And now we got to figure out another place to put you. Right. Which, by the way, happened in Saigon out of the 120,000 people that were evacuated in Saigon, 4,000 of them were deemed never eligible to come to the United States. In this evacuation, we got out some 81,000 Afghans. I know the White House puts out the 130,000 number, but that is that's padding your statistics because the delta there, you know, the 50,000 person difference between my number of 81,000 and their number of 131,000. Well, those 50,000 additional people were people who weren't Afghans who were just hitching a ride on the U.S. military, right? Like they were Brits and Italians and Canadians, anyone else who just happened to be lucky enough to get on a plane. And we count that towards total numbers of evacuated, which is ridiculous. It's really only 81,000 Afghans. And of those 81,000, under... 500, I think, total were deemed to be, yeah, we're not sure about these people. And they all now live on a U.S. military base in Kosovo because they're never coming to the United States ever, right? 
But under a thousand, under a thousand people, like under six hundred of them were bad apples or apples not. Right, necessarily. I, think it's under, I, I really think it's under three hundred. I mean, and it, again, these are bad apples. These are just people that they popped up in it. They're not necessarily a bad apple. They're people who popped up in a database somewhere, hmm. and because they popped up in somebody's database, they can't immigrate to the United States. The vast majority of the people that got out, um you know, were not, however, the interpreters. They were they were mostly the CIA's paramilitary forces and anybody who could bribe their way past them is basically who got on to the airport. It was people with means and people who already had a connection somehow to the U.S. government. And unfortunately, you would think, okay, well, all these interpreters were connected to the U.S. military, but the veteran vote, the veteran, you know, sort of check of approval in this was meaningless. I, it was almost impossible mm. to get uh, an SIV applicant or their family onto the airport. Uh, amazing. Amazing. It came down to like laptops that the state department had with lists that were some contrived list of people through the secret squirrel network that most people would never even qualify to get on. I let's, mean, back that, let's back that one up. So we tried, we had a list when the state department was dealing with these people, you have to understand from an Afghan, again, from the Afghan applicant standpoint, you send in your application for your SIV on average at the point in which the EVAC kicked off, it would take two to three years before your application was even picked up to be looked at. Okay. And so imagine you've sent in your application for, for an SIV Two to three years go by, and then you suddenly hear from the U.S. government. They're saying, hey, we just finally got to your application. We're at the point now where we need you to come in for an interview. Okay, well, what if you've moved over those last two to three years? What if your contact information has changed, et cetera? What we recognized was that because the State Department didn't actually deal with these people on a day-by-day basis, that they really only dealt with them at certain touch points when they first submit the application, when they finally decide to bring them in for an interview, and then when they finally decide to issue their visa, those are really the only three points in which they reach out and talk to somebody, right? And so those are really the only three occasions in which the Afghan has the ability to tell the American government, this is where I am in Afghanistan and how to get in contact with me, right? So recognizing that it was probably the case that for the vast majority of the SIV applicants, the U.S. government hadn't spoken with them in years and probably didn't know where they were or how to communicate with them. But the Association of Wartime Allies was in daily communication with these people and maintained an active database where they constantly updated their contact info. We realized we've got the missing link here, so let's try to give it to them. I've got the receipts. We we formed a whole coalition, you know, not just AWA, but, you know, Tons of organizations around this and ended up calling ourselves evacuate our allies. We put together a plan on how to start evacuating these people well ahead of the actual evacuation. We, we went full press with a media campaign. We engaged members of Congress. But our audience of one, the president of the United States, wasn't pers- persuaded. OK, which president was it? Biden. In July of last year. Uh, around the middle of July, the White House finally announced something called Operation Allies Refuge, which was going to be the formal name of the, the operation to begin flying out SIV applicants ahead of, uh, you know, of the, the proposed withdrawal date of the U.S. military. Because at that point, 
the White House was still operating on the presumption that the Afghan government would survive and, and, you know, there'd still be a partner government there and yada, yada, yada. So, but they also recognized that things were starting to go bad around the country and maybe they should start trying to move some of the SIVs ahead of time. And so they, they picked all of the people that were the easiest, lowest hanging fruit, the people whose applications were all but done. And they, all that they needed was a medical exam to make sure that they weren't coming to the United States with any like communicable diseases. Okay. Well, when they announced that Operation Allies Refuge was going to start in July of last year, and that it would be flying, it was supposed to be flying two to three flights a, a week out of Afghanistan. In reality, they, um, they averaged about a flight or two a week. Um, so only about three to 600 people, you know, uh, and this only, this only went for three or four weeks. So at most they got about 2000, 3000 people total out of these flights. But when they started them, we formally sent the state department an email as evacuate our allies saying not just once, but several times saying we have this database. We know where everyone in the country is. We know how you can communicate with them right now so that you can begin to do this in an orderly fashion. Do you know? When they finally returned our, our request to share information, when they actually finally got back to us, August 17th, two days after Kabul fell, is when they finally came to us and said, we're told that you have a database of things that might be able to be helpful. And now the city's, and now the city's controlled by the Taliban. It's anarchy. These people are now basically hiding for their lives and maybe even some of those touch points don't even exist anymore because they can't safely be where they said they were. Correct. Ridiculous. And I'm so glad that you've shed light on that. Uh, you also said shed more light in the Association of Wartime Allies report and um, just some key findings you guys have now over this last year dug deep into uh, some more data on how we can get these people out and the level of which the failure is. And I can't help but notice in bold on the very first cover page of this study, it says 96% of the SIV applicants, the special immigrant visa applicants, have been left behind. That 96% is is sort of the, the leading key figure, right? And it explains everything else. So as I've been saying all along, we left the vast majority of the interpreters and their families, those who served directly alongside the U.S. military, who have the most tangible relationships to veterans, right? We left the vast majority of those people behind. What we also have learned is, so again, AWA, Association of Wartime Allies, has the unique ability to pull the left-behind Afghan SIV population. And so what we, what we had been doing for the, the better part of the last year was just trying to figure out, okay, you know, the State Department claims they got a lot of these people out. Is that true? And we've definitively proven no. They're all still pretty much there. Um, we then wanted to know about what their lives were like. And their lives are awful. They're, they're, on av- they're averaging one meal a day. Um, it, there's such poverty in Afghanistan at this point that parents are selling their children to buy food to be able to feed their other kids. Um, you know, there, there's an ongoing famine. There's a collapse of the, the public health infrastructure. So people are dying of, you know, just cuts because they can't get antibiotic ointment to treat them. But what really struck us was, and this was the missing component, we partnered up with the Iraq and Afghan Veterans of America and Veterans for American Ideals to pull the U.S. veteran community. Because we wanted to know what was the extent that they were still involved in the evacuation. And what we learned was 
they're very much still involved. But staggeringly, what we learned was that some 40.9% of the Afghans that veterans were actively trying to assist over the last year have gone dark. Now, there's three plausible explanations for that. And the first is, is that they've lost, the Afghan has lost confidence in the veteran that was trying to assist them and has just decided to cease all communications. But I will tell you anecdotally that that just doesn't happen. I have yet to meet the Afghan who has made contact with an American. And if it's an American who like returns their correspondence and feels, okay, this person isn't going to be able to help me. I'm just going to drop communicating with them and move on. Once you acknowledge that you know who this person is and that you would be willing to help them, they pretty much contact you daily. Okay. So the next possible explanation then is, well, maybe, maybe their the telecommunications infrastructure in Afghanistan has collapsed and they don't have access to, you know, the internet where they are and they can't communicate externally. Well, we know that's not true because I can pick up and call every Afghan city right now with no problems. The kudos to China they did a hell of a job coming in and rebuilding the telecommunications infrastructure that the Taliban had destroyed during their conquest. Uh, they, you know, Afghanistan is very much still plugged in globally to the internet and you can effectively easily reach out to people and talk to them if you need to. Okay. So it's not that they've lost confidence in us and it's not that they don't have the, they lack the means to communicate. Akram's razor. The most plausible explanation is they're dead. And that would track with what the Taliban had been saying all the way going back to Doha when we signed the surrender agreement to them under the Trump administration. They had, they were asked at Doha, is there room for reconciliation? And they said, anybody who works for the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan's government, we have no problems with you. We'll happily reconcile. But the people who we cannot forgive, the people who we've deemed apostates, which in their perverted view of Islam means that there is a commandment from God that requires them to kill these people. They said anybody who worked alongside the Americans as an interpreter, they're an apostate. There is no room for reconciliation. They must die. So 49.9% of the Afghans that veterans were actively trying to assist in the last year have gone dark. And the only plausible explanation that we have is that they're likely have been killed. And what does that mean? Well, that means that 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 moral injury that veterans suffered during the evacuation when we abandoned these people has only been exacerbated. And it's to an extent now that some 41 percent of the veterans who are involved in the evac. And I, by the way, think that that's probably a little low. I I think there are some veterans who aren't quite frankly being honest in the survey and reporting their own mortal injury. But 41% have come forward and said, yeah, I have a moral injury and I suffer from a moral injury because of this. Moral injury is the most insidious of all injuries. It's an injury of the soul. It's not something that you can treat with medication It's not something that you can treat by going and talking to a therapist or or in a group. I've found that the only way that you can possibly address moral injury is through acts of, of service. It's through doing good work. And the only thing that I have found that effectively and adequately addresses this moral injury, the only way to really truly heal from this one is to help the remaining Afghans who still need our assistance get home here to America. 
And so, you know, here's what the, the so what of the report shows is that at the current rate of processing these people's applications, it's going to take the government 18 years, 18 years to get through the existing backlog. These people don't have 18 years. They, they probably don't have another year at, at best. I only know of one way to effectively address this moral injury and at the same time save these people. And, and that's by implementing something called the Uniting for Afghanistan program. It would be modeled. It's, it doesn't exist yet. It's a new thing. We're literally making it up as we're talking about it now, but it's based on something called the Uniting for Ukraine program. So in April of this year, the Biden administration announced that they were implementing a new immigration program for Ukrainian refugees. The criteria was, was that if you were a Ukrainian citizen who have been, has been displaced from their home since the 24th of February this year, you are invited to apply for humanitarian parole, which is the legal mechanism by which we bring people into the United States to apply for asylum. It's the way that you get to come to the U.S. without actually having like a tourist visa or a, a student visa or an actual immigration visa. Since April of this year, we have helped welcome over a hundred thousand Ukrainians under this program. And I, I think that's great. My heart goes out to these people. I think what we're doing is the right thing here, right? But for these people, we have waived all of their application fees. The application fee is $575 a person. Uh, for humanitarian parole. That, by the way, is more money than the average Afghan makes in a given year. So for every Afghan who's applied for humanitarian parole, and by the way, some 66,000 Afghans have applied for humanitarian parole since July of 2021. So over the last year, some 66,000 Afghans applied for humanitarian parole. The United States government collected over $20 million in fees from these people for their applications. And these fees are non-refundable. So if you get if your application is denied, it's not like the money gets returned to you. Of the 66,000 who have applied for humanitarian parole from Afghanistan in the last year, we have granted 123 of them permission to come to the United States. You contrast that with since April of this year, 100,000 Ukrainians have availed themselves of the Uniting for Ukraine program, and they have been welcomed to the United States without any background investigation without having to pay an application fee since April of this year. In, in 90 days, brother, we moved 100,000 Ukrainians out of a war zone. And in, the same, in a year, we've only been able to move 123 Afghans. So I know what the solution is. I, I, I watch it work now daily. It's called Uniting for Ukraine. Change the name Ukraine to Afghan or Afghanistan, and let's start getting our nation's longest wartime allies home. And in so doing, healing the moral injury that veterans continue to suffer from. And let's be clear, moral injury ultimately leads to suicide. I know of at least five veterans who killed themselves during the evacuation last year because of the tremendous guilt that they felt over the abandonment of these people. I don't, I stopped asking because I can't for my own mental health. I can't 
know that we're burying. I know that it's happening. I just almost, I don't want to know because it makes it that much harder because these are all preventable deaths. These are things that never should have had to take place in the first place. And the only reason that they are is that we continue to fail these Afghans and, and veterans. Who can I support? Who can I join? Who can I assist? What can I do to continue your fight to help your magnify your voice and to help Congress know that this fight is not over? We are not going to lay down until we help our brothers and sisters, because this is one of the most significant veteran issues still on the table today. So first thing you do is contact your member of Congress and implore them to pass the Afghan Adjustment Act. All of those Afghans that got evacuated last year came here on a temporary status. That status is going to expire for some of them tomorrow, the 1st of September. But for the vast majority, it'll expire next year because they're here on a two-year status. The same thing that happened in Vietnam has to happen now. So all the Vietnamese who were brought out were invited to come to the United States on a temporary basis. And then Congress had to, in 1975 and then again in 1980, pass a law that basically gave all these people green cards and allowed them to stay here forever. The same thing now has to happen for these Afghans, right, that were brought out of Afghanistan. And by the way, the Afghan Adjustment Act will require them to all go through yet one more round of vetting to make sure that, in fact, nobody nefarious somehow still slipped through a crack, right? The other thing that the Afghan Adjustment Act does, and this is critical, is all 300,000 of those Afghans who remain left behind who have availed themselves of the SIV program, hoping that they'll get this visa. Not a single one of them can get the visa right now because the law that grants the State Department the authority to issue SIVs stipulates that any applicant who wants to get one of these visas must undergo an in-person interview at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. And you can see where there's a problem. There's no more U.S. Embassy in Kabul. So the Afghan Adjustment Act adjusts the program to reflect the new reality on the ground in that it will grant the State Department the authority to conduct these interviews elsewhere at other U.S. embassies abroad, or if needs be, via some type of like secure Zoom connection or whatever. Um, sure. Digital communication. Okay, so that's the first major thing is your your audience can call their member of Congress, both your member of the House and both of your senators, if you live in a state and demand that they pass the Afghan Adjustment Act. The second thing is you can, uh, if you're a veteran, you haven't already joined up with IAVA, highly encourage you to do that. We are actively assisting both Afghans getting out of Afghanistan as well as helping them resettle in the communities around them. Uh, if you are trying, if you're not a veteran uh, and you're just trying to assist an Afghan from a civilian perspective, highly recommend you join the Association of Wartime Allies. Kim Stathiri and her team there are at the forefront of helping people with visa assistance um, and then uh, helping them to get placed here in the United States when they, when they arrive. And then if you're solely interested in just helping with the resettlement of folks and you're not a veteran and you want to, you know, get involved in it, the refugee resettlement organizations in particular, Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, the International Rescue Committee, Catholic Charities, HIAS, um, they all need constant volunteers to help with these people as they arrive in the communities around them. Um, I'll say this. If you are a veteran and you really want to get involved, my email is matt 
Zeller at IAVA.org. Uh, and please ping me. We're always looking to try to con- connect veterans with the Afghans who have arrived and pair them up in what we call first friends. Because what we've learned is that the faster we can get an Afghan paired with a veteran is the faster that we can, quite frankly, stave off endemic poverty uh, and really help this Afghan begin to integrate into the community around them. Amen, brother. The fight is not finished. Matt Zeller from IAVA will never let this go. And uh, there are a lot of ways uh, that we can help. So uh, uh, for those listening to the podcast version of this, uh, it's all in the notes. And uh, you can click and I'll put links up for everybody to uh, follow through. And um, again, I, I, I just know that if you can make a difference, if your ripple is just one person, one thing, you can do something and take it a huge step to making the world a better place. Matt Zeller, doing it every day, never forgetting our Afghan allies. And I can't thank you enough for your time, sir. Learn a hell of a lot when I'm with you, man. Thanks, brother. Thanks, brother. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, and it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset, Cinderella, Bracket Buster Sleeper. We've got it all covered, every round, reaction shows, all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Eye on College Basketball podcast wherever you get your podcasts.